Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, all I need to have and trust. It's a tremendous, powerful message for us this morning. And quite frankly, I know that God orchestrates these things, and these young people would not know, but the, the love of Christ is a significant theme in our message this morning. So all that I need to have and trust is true. And we'll see that in very practical ways um, as we study along this morning. Um, I was so excited by what happened with Julia, I forgot to welcome our guests. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not apologizing for being excited about Julia. But if we have guests here this morning, we would like to give you a gift. So maybe someone who brought you, or if you're confident enough uh, to raise your hand this morning, we'd like to recognize you without embarrassing you. Anyone at all? Uh, a guest that's never been given a gift before. Anyone this morning? Our ushers will find you. Uh, we'll continue along. Um, the Cleveland Institute of Music students, uh, very similar to Julia. Julia has an athletic talent, among other talents. These folks have musical talents, among other talents. But what's most um, obvious to me as a pastor is their desire to be light for the gospel in that part of our city, in Cleveland. And these young people disciple each other well. They study the word well. Um, they fellowship well and therefore together they are light and uh, I want to thank them for allowing the grace of God to operate in their lives that way as we pray for you and we do often we pray that that light will continue to shine as I know your hearts want it to and one soul at a time the Lord will give you a fruit that remains as you minister the gospel there We've been studying together uh, since the beginning of the year what it means to do divine things together. We can't look at all of the scriptures this year. I suppose we could and never get into a book study by taking time to study various parts of books about what it means to do spiritual things together. But we've focused our attention here on Ephesians chapter 4 for a few weeks. And it's been about seven years since we looked through this. And Every time I have the opportunity to restudy a text, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? When you dive back into a text that you've read devotionally, but you haven't studied exegetically for seven years, when you go back and restudy it, isn't it amazing, even more truth, <laughs> that the Lord brings out of that text? And that's just the nature of God's Word, isn't it? Um, you hear that phrase over and over. It's amazing to me how much... Uh, truth is in one phrase of scripture and even though you exhaustively treat it in, the, in an expositional series it's like you go back and it's like wow thank you Lord there was even more here to learn that I didn't know before and uh, we've been looking at spiritual togetherness a lot of people call that unity that's the English term that's used often in our Bibles what does it mean to be spiritually one Pastor Hobie likes to 
state it this way. He likes to say there's really no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Anyone that seeks to go life alone and says they're a Christian uh, really needs to understand and comprehend the nature of God. We discussed that theologically, right? The nature of the Godhead. They need to understand the life of Christ himself and uh, how God created us with his image. And he's created us not to be alone in life, and especially in the context of a local church that owns Christ and his gospel, and we've lived that out. We're trying to live that out practically. Certainly, no one in the auditorium should desire to live life alone. And we should enjoy some um, spiritual togetherness here. And even more so, uh, as Hebrews 10 has taught us, even more so as we see the day approaching. Uh, That's always a craving of the Christian heart, isn't it? I want to be with God's people. I want to be with God's people. In my home, even for our children as they're growing up, right? We tried to have like a 70-30-60-40 rule as we were letting the slack out and letting our kids out into the community to experience and rub shoulders with more kids who need Jesus. And we're trying to do the same thing with adults that need Jesus. Um, In order to practically emphasize this in our home, we said, okay, keep a pulse on how much time you spend with both groups. Um, Because of what we're going to see here in one of our texts this morning outside of Ephesians 4, we're going to see that there is a natural but supernatural passion for God's people to be with God's people. And when you look at how that time is invested... And then you figure out how many hours that can take in the course of a week. Uh, Scripture would tell us that it's supernaturally natural for us to be with other people in our local body for fellowship on a regular basis. And so when we have discretionary time, again, outside of all of our scheduled time, and we look at who we're going to spend time with, for our kids, it's kind of like, you know what? I think we need to emphasize uh, you're going to spend this much time with believing children and teenagers. Uh, 60 or 70% of your discretionary time. And you know what? 30 to 40% of your discretionary time, we're certainly going to allow you to continue to rub shoulders with those who need Jesus, right? Because we have a great commission that you're responsible for as my child. There's people that need Jesus on your teams. There's people that need Jesus in our neighborhood, right? And where you work. But we can never do that at the expense of investing time in doing spiritual things together uh, as a family. Last time we uh, really unpacked some truth uh, regarding particular words in Ephesians chapter 4 like humility and and gentleness. How do we do this? How do we spiritually craft quality time together? It has a look. It has a reality to it. We do it with patience. We looked at that together. We do it with tolerance. Remember that? That's where we kind of crescendoed to the end last time. Uh, A word that just basically teaches us that by God's grace, this is doable that what 
that which may seem impossible to you is actually doable. You may be a newer believer and you walk into an environment like this and you say, wow, they, they, they look this way, they sing this way, they act this way, and I'm not that. Um, the devil loves to compartmentalize God's people. He loves for you to be able to walk in and say, wow, I'll never be like them, so I don't know really how I can or ever will associate with them. And then to those who have been saved for a long time, right, we always have the James 2 possible issue. We forget what we were like when we first got saved, and so we look back and we say, ah, they're really immature. Maybe they need to grow up a little bit before I can really meaningfully interact with them. But... If we look at it, right, theologically, we're all equal in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, right? So that's the platform. That's the foundation upon which we gather. In him, we're all perfect. We're all equally adopted into the family. We're all equally part of this family. And from there, we all gradually grow, and we do it together. And, and regardless of triumph or trial, together, living and enduring through either is bearable. It's Doable. It's something we're able to carry. And we do this for one another. And then I want to park for the remainder of our time this morning in a prepositional phrase here and describe it for us. All right, we do this. If you look with me here again, we'll go back up to uh, verse number one of chapter four. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. We've discussed that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. And then there's a two-word prepositional phrase there that's just full of meat. We do this for one another in love, right? In love. Let's look at another Pauline text real quickly this morning to see what this practically meant for Paul, who's also writing this prepositional phrase. Let's go over to 1 Thessalonians 4, a passage of Scripture that's familiar to many of you. For those of you that are newly saved, this be something you'd be reading for the first time, maybe. And there's a handful of you here for sure. There's some practical things here to learn. Paul tells the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9 that they're doing really, really well understanding the love of God in Christ. So well, he says in verse 9, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God how to love one another, for indeed you practice it towards all the brethren in your church, right? The church in Thessalonica there, but also to all those who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and more. That's kind of like a sub-theme in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, keep growing. Don't ever be satisfied with your growth in Christ. There's always more grace to produce more growth. But he says here in verse 11, there's three really practical ways that we show how we love each other. It says here, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's the first one. The second one is, and to attend to your own business. And the third is to work hard with your hands. That third one is attached to the phrases following. And the third one's specifically in reference to your secular vocational work, where God put your gospel light in your workplace. 
right? And because you have a great work ethic, you also have a divine influence, right? You work hard with your hands just as we command you to verse 12 so that you'll behave properly towards outsiders. Those, the word outsiders just means those who aren't in the family of God yet. I have neighbors who are outsiders to my home. They're not part of my family. They're outside of my family. All this is Pauline verbiage to say there are people out there that still don't know Jesus. And when you go to work, you go to work because the love of God's compelled you to go there to have a good work ethic, to have a good disposition so that you can be light because God probably has someone in your work environment to influence for himself. As a matter of fact, I would, I would almost say he's guaranteed that you will be a gospel influence there, whether it's a savor of life and the life or death and the death. You're, you can't help but be a gospel influence, right? So let's back up from there. The second virtue was uh, simply a familiar phrase that we may use with our children or, or someone in our lives that we feel is way too intrinsically nosy, right? Attend to your own business, Really, mind your own business, your translation might say. And we've talked about that here. What does that mean? It just simply means mind your own business. Someone who knows the love of God well is not interested in nosing around in other people's personal lives or daily lives. The Thessalonian people had been taught by the love of God. Remember, there's no one that can come in and mentor them because they're mentored by God how to do that, and they're mentoring one another now to making sure, you know what? Uh, we're not nosy people. And really, they're so busy about their Christian life, there really is no time left to be a busy body, to be an intrinsically nosy person. And then the first virtue here that we already read, which is really an explication of love, an explanation of love, is that they make it their ambition to lead a quiet life. And this phrase, folks, just simply put in our own language is how they would have understood it. Um, as we learn this, it's, it's, they're not making issues out of non-issues. Right? When we get together as a family, we're focused on the Lord, His Word, one another, developing each other in the word of God, encouraging one another so that we can prepare one another to go out and to be light. This is not a difficult process to understand while it is and needs the grace of God to develop. Okay? So, while we're here, that's the business we're about. So we really don't have time to make issues out of non-issues, issues that are unrelated to that particular goal of knowing the Lord together, loving his word together, growing each other deeper in the word together so we can go out and be light together. So that's how Paul describes love. When you go back to, again, Ephesians 4, and because Paul wrote both passages and the Greek roots are the same here for love, when he says that we're learning to show tolerance for one another in love. I believe that prepositional phrase is exactly tied to just that participial phrase. When we're learning to do this together, when we're learning all of this is bearable and doable and carryable together, that the only way we're going to be able to do this in love and tolerating one another, 
doing this together just simply means that we're a group of people that are minding our own business, not making issues out of non-issues, and we have a good work ethic, right? Now we're going to go with me to 1 Peter 4 now. Let's look outside of a Pauline explanation of what this looks like practically, and let's find the same root used by Peter in 1 Peter 4, okay? We're looking at spiritual togetherness here and what it is, what it looks like, how it acts, how it behaves, I guess we could say. Among one another, Peter gives us a very descript, practical reality of what this is. And we're going to focus just on verses uh, 7 uh, through 11 here, but I want to let you know that obviously verses 7 through 11 comes after verses 1 through 6. So we're going to qualify as we march through these handful of verses together what it means to love like this among the family of God since we've been extracted from another family. Okay. There's always, I believe here in verses 7 to 11, a compare and contrast with verses 1 through 6. Right. So because of that, uh, let's look at verses 7 through 11 first, but we're going to jump back and look at some phrases in verses 1 through 6, okay? Paul says here in verse 7, the, Peter says here at the, end of verse, at the beginning of verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So we have this spiritual togetherness once again. And here's love. Stay fervent. Stay real with it. <laughs> Because love covers a multitude of sins and be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which is the grace which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So let's go back here. To the end of all things, because it's near, therefore be sound in judgment, sober of spirit for the purpose of prayer and above all, and certainly in addition to these things is really what it's saying. Certainly, in addition to these things, keep fervent in your love for one another. And that looks like something, okay, that has a reality to it. So just like Paul says, we have those three virtues in verse 11 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Peter's going to say there's some practical virtues to love here. And it looks like something in spiritual togetherness. And it says here that love does cover a multitude of sins. The word cover here, as it would have been understood by these Christians in Asia and Asia Minor, was mean, they would have heard this and said, wow, I've got to build something over something. 
I've got to build something over something. I've got to cover it up. Not in the sense of secretly hiding it, but really I've got to bury it. I've got to do something to get rid of it. That's the idea here. Love does cover sin. Love inside the body of Christ, if it's functioning properly, will help each one of us if we're going to compartmentalize anything inside the body of Christ, right, is to compartmentalize our past lives from our present life. So in other words, when God forgives our past, then when we walk into a new family who has also been forgiven of their past, that new family will never hold our toes to our past. By God's grace, love is able to bury and help keep buried each other's pasts aren't we thankful for that (laughs) right now what's the past that peter's talking about here let's go back to verses one through six right therefore since christ has suffered in all in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the unsaved or those who don't know Jesus. In his words here, a synonym for that is Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, having your life consumed with that which is everything immoral in the context of intimacy, Right? That's what consumed our lives before Jesus. He continues to describe it here. Lusts. These guttural passions for things and desires and, and people that consume us. Instead of being God-consumed, we're lust-consumed. It says here, Drunkenness. Your translation might say partying or carousing. Uh, The idea here is enjoying time with those people who don't know Jesus around drunkenness and around lusts and around things that are sensual only in a particular party context. And then he clarifies it even more that in, in addition to just carousing in those environments, there are some parties that are just exclusively drinking parties. and abominable idolatries. Again, these things extant to ourselves that ourselves crave for all kinds of reasons that are not godlike. And these are the environments and these are the things that we did before we knew the grace of Christ. In all this, verse 4, they are surprised. They, those are the people that still don't know Jesus who are or were our friends in that context, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess. And now, instead of being friends with you, they malign you. But they're going to give an account to him, verse 5, who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead 
spiritually dead. And though they are judged in the flesh as man, the gospels preach to them that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So we always say here, if you really don't know the gospel and you've really never accepted the gospel unless the gospels change the way you live, right? Knowing the gospel doesn't get you a free ticket out of hell, primarily, okay? That's why I gotta be really, really careful when we talk about the gospel with people. If you die today, do you know where you're going? That's not the primary question we should be asking people who need Jesus. I ask them, have you ever come to a point where Jesus changed the way you lived and how you thought and how you made choices? Right? In a religious context, that first question, right, we get a lot of answers. Yeah, I know I'm going to heaven if I die. Why? Well, because I've checked this religious box, and I've checked this religious box, and yeah, I mean, based on what my religious leader tells me, I'm there. I'm good as gold, right? No, but when does the gospel change your life? And that's what Peter's saying here. How has the love of God changed the way you're living? And obviously it has, right? And one way particularly that it has is it's allowed you to take the past of other people in the body and bury it as you've desired them to bury your past and remember it no more too. And that has just a lot of practical ramifications to it, doesn't it? I mean, if you're discipling a brand new believer, right? And let's say that they were hooked on alcohol, right? Or whatever vice may have been listed here in chapter 4. And they've had you know, two to three really tremendous months and growing in Christ-likeness, and they're, they're thrilled to have been detached from that old way of living. And one Wednesday night, they show up in the lobby, and they look a little defeated, and they sit down, and the tears start to flow. And they say, you're not going to believe this man, but I can't believe it. Why in the world, after all these weeks of being sober, I mean, I even had my time with God this morning. And I walked away from him for part of my day. I went out and I got drunk. And I feel horrible. I even got drunk with my old friends that I used to get drunk with. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, at that point, what does love do? Love buries a multitude of sins. What sins? Within the context, the sins of your pre-converted life. Right? I'm able to look at that person and say, hey, look, let's remind, be reminded of who we are in Jesus. Let's look at 1 John 1, 9. Let's not treat it lightly, but seriously, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's certainly a couple things God cannot do. He cannot remember confessed sin. And when he looks at you, he still sees Jesus. God didn't love you less because you got drunk last night. And he doesn't love you anymore because you've been sober before last night for three months. He loves Jesus in you. You've confessed it. Let's go on. The sins of your past, in my mind, have been buried. That's what love does. Amen. Just what it does. It's able to bury it. 
Not sweep it under the rug. Remember the context. Remember the context. And then we go to God's word and we help that person who stumbled and fell with other parts of scripture and we're able to say, hey, look, let's go now and let's consider this so, so maybe we can do as best we can to use God's word to prevent last night from happening anytime soon. Now let's grow together, but we're gonna be able to learn together, okay? And God's grace will help us along the way. So this is what love is able to do. Jesus acted this way, didn't he? With the woman at the well in John 4. I mean, if you want a a, a very real Christ-like example, Christ is explaining the gospel to this sweet lady. She is living a very sordid reality, a very, maybe in that time, probably even a very filthy reality. And why we know it is even in that time? Because she's living it secretly. She comes to her spiritual senses in that conversation. And she says, I have no husband. And he said, that's right. And the man that you're with now, right? The man you're being immoral with now is one of a handful. And she's convicted. And what does love do? The love of the gospel changes the way you live. She repents, places her faith in Christ. Christ brings about a changed life. And she runs back to town and tell him what? I've met Jesus and he's changed me. The response is not always favorable. And we see that from 1 Peter 4. The people that used to run with you will pull away from you and sometimes even malign you. Because the miracles happen in your life. But when you gather with this family, spiritual togetherness knows love. And it's able to cut the past from your present just like Jesus does, right? Forgive one another, Ephesians 4, right? Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. This is what we do. Not long ago, a national media, it's probably two to three years ago, there was a Victoria's Secrets model who was born again And she was so excited about her newfound faith in Christ and the way her Jesus changed her life. She started to tweet and post and write and get on television about why she left the sordid lifestyle of a Victoria's Secrets model. Right? That didn't go over so well with her former model friends. Right? She made a statement in one video excerpt or interview that I saw, and she said this. I wrote it down because I thought, wow, we have no gospel unless the gospel changes the way we live. She said, the body that I used to show off to every man that wanted to look for me, look at me, God just told me that that look is for my husband alone. And she'd been saved just for weeks. Well, grace taught her. It changed her. It's just what grace does by the gospel. And every single one of us brings into this family a past, right? 
It's a past that none of us really want to spend much time talking about. And if we do, and we're kind of enamored by our past still, eh, maybe we need to understand really the nature of the gospel. But really, in this environment, we don't want to spend much time at all talking about our pasts. And if we fall to the temptation of our past, right, what do we do? We don't ever connect that failure to our past. We're able to compartmentalize that failure to our present. Assume God's grace is going to do its work in immediate forgiveness and let's move on, right? Love buries the past. It goes on here in 1 Peter chapter 4 to another activity that's all necessary. Like if you're losing people that used to be your friends, verse 4 of chapter 4 and all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the old lifestyle and they malign you. If you're losing a family, you've got to gain a family, right? Doesn't that make sense? <laughs> and so he says here, verse 9, and it's a command, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, that's a powerful phrase there, the way it finishes, without complaint, and within its immediate context, there's all kinds of reasons why one might complain when we are prepared to receive people into our house for dinner, for a ball game, to play a night of board games, uh, whatever. Um, have s'mores in our backyard, whatever people come over to our house for, I suppose there's all kinds of things we could complain about, right? We got to complain about cleaning the house to get it ready so people can come over. And by the way, why do we have to do that? Well, because my wife wants to do that. Okay, so then I have to do that, right? I was like, like why can't they just come over and just kind of like see us the way we are? Like, I'm, does their house never look like this? Right? We, people like live here. People eat here. They sleep here. They get sick here. They get well here. So what's wrong with this? It just doesn't really... <laughs> Livestream does pick up amen, so we got to be careful with it. Right? So what do I want to do? I want to honor my wife's desire, Right? to have a house that's presentable. So I could complain by saying, be hospitable without complaint. I need to stop and I need to go clean the house. I get that. But my, my brain and you guys, have, as you've learned this passage and studied on its own, I'm, I'm certainly willing to be taught what you've learned from it. But my brain can't connect this without complaint with verse, from verses one to six. This family, this new person has lost a family. As a matter of fact, that family's walked away from them and now maligning them, and now they need to understand the love of God, and it means that we're love disconnecting their, we're doing that. No, 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 you're walking in here perfectly clean in Jesus, and when they come over to your house for hospitality, they're not bringing their past with them, even in your mind's eye. Oh, wow, they're known in our community for being this. I'm not so sure I need that, my children exposed to that. Okay? And that's why I think here, the Spirit of God has Peter make this a command, not an option. Be hospitable. 
right? Be hospitable. This word hospitable in its root form is two words put into one, okay? And it literally means, as they would have understood it in this cultural context, it would have been a peck on the cheek, okay? Show friendship by giving them a peck on the cheek, even though they're a stranger but in Christ now to you. So this is really how they would have been hearing this. We had this old family, this, this, new, this, this new believer that's found a new family that's lost their old family. They need a place to spend some time with people. And when they come into their, your place, they're gonna come in completely detached from their past, so you treat them that way too, because God already has, and what they need from you is immediate reception. And in this culture, it would have been a peck on the cheek, and you may not even have known them well, because the word, as we understand it, typically is receiving strangers, right? But in this context, this is what this meant. It's receiving a new family member into the family of God who's lost a family into your home and treating them as if they'd never sinned that way in their past before. They're not carrying old ball and chain into their house, right? They're not this, that, just receive them. They need that. That's what love does. So we're talking about, again, Ephesians 4, tolerating one another in love. It's a real practical way to show togetherness, isn't it? Okay? Be hospitable. And the command here tells us that we've got to carve out time to do this. I think we've always understood, I'll speak for myself, I think I've always understood before we journeyed into still trying to figure out what this disciple-making culture is at Grace. I've always understood this word hospitality, and by the way, I've always understood it to mean receiving strangers. But I always understood it to mean receive people who are already in the church and have been there for a while that you don't know well and make sure you're having them into your house. And you know what? I think it is used that way in other contexts in the scripture. But in this particular context, I think it means what we've already said. Receive new believers that are in the flock that have just recently lost an old family that really need to know what it means to have a new one and get them in there. Right? And treat them like this. So, we're loving this way in relationship to our past. We're loving this way in relationship to treating new believers. And we're demonstrating our love, Peter says here, in a third way by serving. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving. We're gonna do this together, right? Doing divine things together, one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, having received a special gift, for you Greek people, this is in the aorist tense, and for you non-Greek people, that just simply means there was a significant point in your past, particularly your conversion moment, the moment you were saved, where God gave you at least one spiritual gift. And as we've already read in the rest of these verses in chapter 4, you either got a serving gift or you got a speaking gift. We're not here to delineate those gifts, define them and find out which one you have today. We're just saying love serves. 
love serves because it's compelled to serve by, as the text said we read earlier, by the manifold grace of God. The grace that saved you, that transformed the way you're living, here's three aspects in which your living had been transformed. You're able to handle each other's past better. You're able to receive people into your home that are new believers, that have been disconnected from that past now. And by the way, you're able to take a gift that was given to you the moment you were saved and that same grace that saved you has equipped you to serve that new believer and to serve others regardless of the degree or the, the trajectory or where they're at in the trajectory of their spiritual growth or not. We just serve. This is what we do. That's what that grammar's saying. In other words, it's no less of an emphasis of the command to be hospitable all right? This participle says you started when you were gifted anyway with the result you're going to continue. It's just something we do, right? It almost becomes somewhat involuntary. We serve one another. The word employ it here is where we get our English word deacon. This is an act of service, isn't it? We employ it as good stewards, as a butler would running a home or a manager or a house steward we make sure we do this carefully we make sure we do this consistently we make sure we do this compassionately why because we have people who have a new family and they really need it <laughs> they really need it so many of you are doing this it's such a blessing to watch you do it, and for the measure in which we're doing it, I think we're being blessed by the Spirit of God because these are gifts that he gave us. So keep on keeping on and doing the right thing. The word manifold here, he's been given to you by the, the manifold, end of verse 10 there, grace of God. The word manifold here is a powerful word. It just means of different kinds. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God is a God of all kinds of comfort, right? God is able to uh, script, I guess, if you would, choreograph, uh, particularly designed for you, a kind of comfort you need at any particular moment, right? The comfort we may need when a relative passes is a unique kind of comfort, right? The kind of comfort we need when a church family member has been diagnosed with an illness but is still with us is a kind of comfort, right? The kind of comfort we need, like when my daughter comes home from soccer practice on Friday night and I think she's getting sick and indeed she wakes up Saturday morning with a fever and uh, whatever she's got, she's got, she's entombed, not entombed, she's right now buried under blankets in, in her room and she's, yeah, she's out, right? And that's where she should be with lots of fluids, right? There's a kind of comfort that I want to give to her. And what do I want to give to my daughter? I, I get her chocolate-covered strawberries from Mally's, right? That's just God's will, right? <laughs> I want the comfort. That's the kind of comfort I provide for her. In every situation, God gives us different kinds of comfort for us. This is the idea here, right? What do we do? Well, God's grace has gifted us in various ways, right, to minister to people who are part of a new family, and they need that. They need your serving gift. They need your speaking gift. So between 1 Thessalonians 4 
and 1 Peter 4, there are six virtues, virtues or activities that describe what Christian love is and what it does. As we are showing tolerance, be, making this new Christian experience bearable together with one another in love. And I just got to be, you know, just thinking here of 1 Corinthians 13, right? There's faith, there's hope, and there's love, but the greatest of these is, is love. And there's so many theological and philosophical and practical ways why love is greater than faith and hope. Because without love, there is no faith. <laughs> without love, there is no hope, and love is love. And this is what, what love looks like in relationship to Ephesians 4 and these other two texts. And I hope we're able to continue to explore this context and learn what it means together right, to do the will of God doing the right thing the right way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the simplicity of these words, the clarity, the help of the Spirit of God. I trust to learn them and understand them for me. Um, and I pray for our flock. Thank you for preserving your divine word for our learning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.